All right. A lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth exiting for Praiseville today. Something else. Also, just on that note of weeping, I heard babies crying earlier. Is that over in this direction yeah, somewhere? That was awesome, actually. Just want to say, like, it was nice and quiet in here. And it was awesome to hear a baby crying. Like, amidst all the suffering, the sadness, the sorrow, the Lord gives life. Right? Yeah, so that is, is awesome to hear and to rejoice. So, we, uh, we love uh, loud, distracting, squirmy kids, so, so don't feel bad if, if they're in here. Even, even we adults can be a little distracting sometimes, right? So, all right, it's a joy to be uh, with you all this morning and to have this opportunity to spend time in God's Word. So, I would encourage you to open and turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 4 through 6 today. And I should say, for parents, on that note, if you do need to get out because the kid is just getting really loud and you would like to leave, downstairs in our kids' wing, we do have a room where the, the service is streamed down there, and there's a nice couch and stuff, so you can go be comfortable. So just in case that happens, just know that that's there for you. All right, so we're in James chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Uh, last week, we saw uh, in verses 1 through 3 uh, how... Um, in the church, what was happening is all of these quarrels and fightings were, were springing up. They were part of the life of the church, unfortunately. And that was a result of uh, the church, uh, whether it's as a whole and, or individuals in the church, being led, uh, being governed by their passions, their pleasures, their desires. So their fleshliness was kind of in the driver's seat, so to speak. And because of that, there were quarrels and fights breaking out in the church. In verses 4 through 6, we see how the same kind of driver is there. So desires for passions, pleasures, all of that fleshliness is now motivating the church into something more in verses 4 through 6. And it's what we see, uh, if you just you know, take a little glance at it, we see that now the passions and, and the pleasures are causing the church to seek friendship with the world, to seek friendship with the world. And that's dangerous for a few reasons, so we want to look at that uh, in three ways. Number one, friendship with the world is spiritual adultery. Friendship with the world is spiritual, spiritual adultery, and we could say, go ahead and get it out there, of which we are all guilty, of which we're all guilty. Number two, because we're guilty of this, and uh, seeking friendship with the world, which is spiritual adultery, that makes us an enemy of God whose name is Jealous. Our God whose name is Jealous. We'll, we'll see that in the Old Testament passage a little later. But the good news that we ultimately want to see as we get down to verse 6 is that God gives more grace. God gives more grace. So we want to see how we are all guilty of seeking friendship with the world and how that friendship with the world is spiritual, adult spiritual adultery. And that leads us into a place where we become enemies of God whose name is Jealous. But what we want to see at the end of the day is that God gives more grace. So that's what we uh, will be looking at today in James 4, 4 through 6. So let's read the passage, then we'll pray and we'll get going. James 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Most holy God, we do thank you for uh, the gracious gift of your word that you have delighted to reveal yourself to your people in speaking to us, and that in doing so, you in your faithfulness have caused your word to be written down, uh, to be preserved throughout the ages so that we today can come to know you. You delight to reveal yourself to us today, to make yourself known to us. But not only just do we come to know you in your word, but we come to know from your word what it is uh, to live a life that's pleasing to you, how we can live in a way that honors you. But also we come to see and be instructed and warned about what it looks like to live a life that is displeasing to you, that dishonors you, a life that we ought to flee from. So Lord God, we pray that as we do study from your word and hear from it now, that your Holy Spirit would powerfully be at work accomplishing your good and perfect purposes and will in our time together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, number one, friendship with the world is spiritual adultery. Friendship with the world is spiritual adultery, of which we are all guilty. So today's passage starts off on a nice nice foot, right? You adulterous people. Uh, one of the things that, that sometimes I wish as I'm, I'm reading scriptures, I, I think that there should be more exclamation points throughout and this is one of those passages where there is so much emphasis given that we get one of those exclamation points. But it's at a point where, unfortunately, James and God, through James, is rebuking the church, calling the church to see sinfulness in their midst. And so, with much emphasis, James writes to the church, You adulterous people. So why would he start off by saying, why would he use the analogy of, uh, of being an adulteress here to speak to the church? Well, throughout the Old Testament, we'll look at a few passages to see this, spiritual adultery in the Old Testament, it's Old Testament language for addressing idolatry. So Old Testament, uh, adulterous language or adultery language is Old Testament language for addressing the sin of idolatry. We see that because, one, one of the things we see in Scripture is that our God, the God that we worship and call upon that reveals himself to us in Scripture, is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. God makes covenant with his people. His people are in relationship with him because they are in covenant with him. So, we see passages where that analogy kind of gets borne out of what it's like to be in covenant with them in the analogy of a husband and a wife. So Isaiah 54, verse 5 says, For your maker is your, is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. For your maker is your husband, it says. Jeremiah 2, verse 2, continues that. It says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. So positively speaking, in the Old Testament, the, the way in which the analogy that's given to describe the covenant relationship that God's people are brought into, it's given the analogy of a husband and a wife, of a husband and a wife. But as 
Scripture, as the Lord reveals to his people the, the spiritual realities in which they're in, throughout the Old Testament, what we see negatively is that God's people have broken covenant in their sinfulness. So we get in Jeremiah 31, verse 32. We'll start in verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And then when you get, by the time you get to Ezekiel, Ezekiel is using the language of adultery throughout and sexual immorality throughout as an analogy to reveal and to show how God's people, through their idolatrous ways, have committed spiritual adultery. Most famously is an entire book of the Bible, Hosea. Hosea is a book that depicts the graphic nature of sin by using the analogy of spiritual adultery and how a wife goes astray, giving herself over to sexual immorality, and that becomes an analogy for the idolatry of God's people. So why use the analogy of adultery? Why use the analogy of adultery to address idolatry? Well, we think about what is the most significant human relationship that we enjoy on earth. The most sacred bond that we enjoy as humans. And that's the covenant between a husband and a wife. The covenant between a husband and a wife. And so, God, in his grace and in his mercy, gives us language we can understand so that we can understand things that are beyond our comprehension. So, God's holiness is beyond our total and complete comprehension. We know that God is holy, holy, holy. So he is holy in ways that we cannot fully imagine or comprehend or fully know. So, to convey that sense of holiness then, and to show what it's like when we sin against a God who is infinitely, perfectly holy... He gives us words that we can use. He gives us language we understand. So how offensive is our sin against a holy, holy, holy God? Well, here's the analogy that's given. It's like adultery. It's like unfaithfulness to the marital covenant. It's like the breaking of a trust in relationship in the most sacred relationship that exists between humans in this world, between a man and his wife. That's the analogy to get, that's given to depict just how, how heinous, how disgusting, how offensive our sin is against the Lord. So the Old Testament language that's given there of adultery is to call out just how terrible the sin of idolatry is. Now one of the things that we see in the Old Testament is that idolatry is not just a matter of bowing down before a wooden or bronze image. It's not just what it is. In the same sense that in the New Testament, adultery is not just a matter of what you do physically. But, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So in the same sense that adultery is not just a matter of physical action, but is a matter of the heart, 
idolatry, idolatry is not just a matter of physically bowing down to a physical image, but is a matter of the heart. Idolatry is a matter of the heart. And we see this in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. Paul says this, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and then in parentheses he says, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So Paul in the New Testament says most clearly that idolatry is a matter of the heart. He says he equates covetousness with idolatry. And what is covetousness? It's the sin of the heart. Wanting, desiring, and longing for things other than God. Or to use Romans 1 language, exchanging the glory of creator God for the glory of created things. Giving ourselves over to our longings, to our passions, to our pleasures, to the desires of the flesh. And in our hearts, longing after those things. That is spiritual idolatry. So we want to say that spiritual adultery is idolatry. So what is the spiritual adultery that James is rebuking the church for in verse 4 of chapter 4? He says, They have followed the passions and pleasures of their flesh into friendship with the world. They have sought after friendship with the world. And for that reason, he calls them spiritual adulterers. Here's the thing. This is a sin. This is a type of spiritual adultery that all of us are guilty of. When you go read the Old Testament, this is actually really scary for us to think about. The presence of household gods within God's people is a thing that is, is a reality that is very easy to be hidden, to be neglected, and to be kept over in the corner away from watchful eyes. So when you go back to some of the heroes of the faith, they, in their worship to God, if you were to search their house well, you might discover household gods. Jacob, when he's fleeing from Laban, Laban is pursuing after Jacob. One of the reasons why he's doing that is because Laban's household gods are missing. And who has them? Rachel. David, whenever Saul is seeking to pursue David, and David goes on the run, and Michael, his wife, has a, a, a genius plan to, to, to fool and trick Saul and his men, you know, she goes to the bed and, and fluffs it up, makes it look like there's a person there. But what she does is she takes one of the household gods and puts it in the bed to fool. David's wife, in David's household, there are household gods. We're going to read this passage in just a little bit. But think about Joshua's warning, if you're familiar with it, from Joshua chapter 24, the famous passage. Me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. So Israel, who will you serve this day? Are you going to be like your forefathers who, beyond the river and in Egypt, worshipped other gods, or are you going to worship the God, Yahweh, who has delivered you and saved you? So what is present amongst even God's people in the Old Testament? These household gods. And how easy are they to be hidden, to be undetected, to be tucked away in a corner, or when they might need them, or for when they might want to pull them out. And the same is true for us. How easy is it for us to hide away our little household gods, the little idols that we give our hearts over to? 
that make us spiritual adulterers, that we hide away, that we tuck away, that the people out there can't see because, oh, we look good on the outside, but meanwhile in our hearts is all kinds of spiritual adultery. We fall into this adulterous idolatry in seeking friendship with the world in two ways. And then maybe we can start to call out some of these idols. But we fall into this in two ways. By accepting the world's beliefs and ideologies, so one, by accepting the world's beliefs and ideologies, and as a result of that, what happens is our actions are conformed to the ways of the world. We start to live like the world. So first what happens as we are falling into this friendship with the world, which is spiritual adultery, this adulterous idolatry, we fall into it by accepting the beliefs and ideologies of the world and then by living like the world. So how many individuals, if James were writing to us and speaking to us, if we're to to take this passage and allow it to be a mirror what, what, might sin, what idols might we be tempted to be bowing down to? So think how many individuals in churches have gone astray through softening on the Bible's teaching regarding sexual ethics between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Softening on what just simply immorality is. Maybe the little ways we accept sins of lusts or the sins of what happens on our devices because it's away from everything, and it's, it's not out in front of people. How many individuals and churches have gone astray by compromising how they define marriage? By blurring the lines regarding how God has created us in his image to be male and female. How many individuals and churches go astray through adopting, adopting worldly beliefs about success? This could be tempting to us. Churches, they become increasingly pragmatic and programmatic to the point where structures, the things we do, the things we offer, the things we have in place, begin to take the place where the word of God once stood as a sufficient foundation for the church. Pastors are called to be culture builders and building builders who can attract and keep the crowds rather than faithful pastors who exist to shepherd the sheep and trust the results of the labor to the Lord. Individuals in bowing down to the idols of success can go astray through thinking that success is found in their fruitfulness of the bank account or stocks. Success is defined in the security and the comfort and the pleasures that they have. Parents, we are called into friendship with the world through accepting its definition of success for our kids And what that looks like is maybe the investments we we give in time, in money, relationships, and schedules might reveal that priorities have shifted from discipleship into Christ-likeness and into relational, academic, athletic, and social achievements. How tempting is it to bow down to the idols of success? How many individuals of churches and churches have gone astray through adopting the tactics of the world that are contrary to Scripture when confronting things that are wrong? Individuals disregard aspects of the fruit of the Spirit like gentleness and kindness and instead take up the posture, emotion, and speech of the world to combat the world 
And so individuals and churches look less and less different from the world when trying to give biblical correction to the ways of the world. So what household gods remain hidden or undetected in your heart? What do you believe will make you happiest, most satisfied? What are you working for? What are you daydreaming about? What do you think about when you wake up in the morning and when you go to sleep at night? What would you fear to lose above all else? What consumes your desire to have above all else? Some of the answers to those questions might reveal the idols that are lurking in our hearts as we seek to have friendship with the world by adopting its beliefs and ideologies and coming to live like it. I was reading in Daniel this week and was reminded of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know what happens whenever you pursue and give into friendship with the world and bow down to its idols? Ease, comfort, security. It is natural that in our fleshliness we would bow down to the idols of the world because what we see as the alternative is a furnace of the world's creating. We don't want to get shunned in our PTA meetings or on the ball fields or in our churches or, you know, at the coffee shop or we don't want to have the wrong opinions on certain things and so we start to, little bits here and there, become friends with the ideologies of this world Start bowing down to its idols to avoid the furnace that the world creates for those who reject the ways of the world. What happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They don't bow down, and they're thrown into the furnace. And what happens? The Lord is with them. They're not harmed. They're not consumed. Here's the thing, though. Spiritual adultery, right, seeking friendship with the world, the second thing we want to say is this puts us in, this puts us at odds with our God whose name is Jealous, who is a consuming fire. The Lord is not stoking up a fiery furnace for anybody, all right? The Lord is a consuming fire, and to seek friendship with the world is to be at odds with that God, and that's what we want to say in number two. So one of the things we see, look in um, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. So the Scripture rightly talks about how like jealousy is sin. It is a sin to be jealous. So why is, is Scripture speaking of, of God having a jealous yearning over the spirit that he's made to dwell within us? Well, just like, you know, months ago we talked about the hypothetical possibility that we can have a righteous anger, right? So there's a, there's a way in which we can have a righteous anger towards sin, towards evil in the world. But we, we talked about how while we can have that righteous anger, and that's good and that's right, we as people are always just mixed up with fleshliness and sin. So we're never perfectly righteous. In the same sense, at why it's sinful for us to be jealous, why jealousy is a sin, is because jealousy is, is having the attitude or the disposition 
of longing for or expecting or feeling like you're owed things that aren't yours, that you have no right to. But maybe an example of a righteous jealousy would be to continue the metaphor of marital covenant. It would probably be odd if we saw a spouse in an adulterous relationship and the other spouse showed no concern over that, right? Was not jealous over his wife or her husband's affections and faithfulness. So in the same sense, or we could say even more than that, because God is perfect, he is pure, he is holy, and infinitely so, his jealousy, God's jealousy is not sin, but it flows out of his righteous character and sovereignty over all things. Romans eleven thirty six says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It is not sinful for God to be jealous because God actually does own all things and is owed all things. So it is right for him, right for him, through whom all things exist and for whom all things exist, to have a jealous yearning over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. Now, even scarier for us, the, not just as, uh, so adultery in the Old Testament is giving us a picture of idolatry. When you go to the Old Testament, which we're about to do, we'll go through a few verses, there is a close, terrifying connection between uh, spiritual adultery and the jealousy of God, the jealousy of God. In the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, God says this, you shall not bow down to them, so a carved image or any likeness that is like them, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In Exodus chapter 34, after the incident with the golden calf, in Exodus 34, verse 13, he talks about, as he's giving them instructions as they will go into the land, he says this, You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And then in that Joshua 24 passage that we referenced earlier, when Joshua is saying, who are you going to serve? What's Israel's response? We will serve the Lord. And you know what Joshua's, this is Joshua's response in verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Why is it that they are unable to serve the Lord God who is a holy God? Because they're fallen. Because they're sinful. Because they're prone to wander. They're prone to keeping, tucked away within their hearts, the little household gods that they want to keep. And we see this. Go read the end of 2 Kings. The result of Israel making friendship with the world is that they begin to bow down to all the world's idols, and that makes life easier for them, but not with the Lord. And so the Lord sends them into exile. And one of the longest chapters in 2 Kings, or maybe the longest, is the Lord calling out and exposing the sin of Israel as he sends them into exile for their idolatry. 
for their spiritual adultery. Our God, whose name is Jealous, is a consuming fire against all sin and all unrighteousness, and he will consume. He will show the idols of the world to be nothing. And all of them, all of those who bow down to the idols of the world, to be nothing. God will get the glory, and he will share his glory with no other. So our friendship with the world, of which we are all prone to, if we're honest with ourselves and seeing what's truly in our hearts, puts us at odds with God. It makes us an enemy of God. To choose friendship with the world is to be an enemy of him. So one of the things we might want to answer before we go on is, we understand from passages like John 15 that God has, has made us his friend through what Jesus has done for us. So let's answer this. Can we be unfriended? Can we be unfriended by God? So just up front, just two maybe points of application. What this passage ought to do for us, we who have these household gods within our hearts that we're always tempted to bow down to, two things we might want to say is, one, is if you find those household gods lurking within you as you seek to be friends with the world, is you ought to take this passage as a warning. As a warning. Because what you might need to be confronted with is the fact that you're not a friend of God. That maybe you have not fully, maybe you have not, I should say, repented of sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe you've given your life over to the externals while you've kept your heart to yourself and away from the Lord. So this passage might need to serve as a warning in that sense. But secondly, the other thing it might need to do for a lot of us in here, if if we are truly in Christ, I think one of the things that as James is writing to the church, to those who are in Christ Jesus, this passage also needs to warn us and maybe expose to us that we might be in danger of forfeiting, forfeiting experientially friendship with God. So are you in a position where maybe you feel like the Lord is distant? Where you are cold to the Lord? where you're numb to the Lord, maybe numb or callous to sin? Does reading God's word feel more like duty, like a religious performance? Does prayer seem just laborious, something you don't want to give yourself over to? So does friendship with the, friendship with the Lord just seem completely irrelevant because the Lord is just, just there somewhere for you? What that might say is that you might have household gods within your heart. You might be a spiritual adulterer within your heart you might have given yourself over to friendship with the world, and because of that, you are experiencing what it's like to be an enemy of God when you should be enjoying friendship with God. So this passage ought to be doing those two things for us. So to be an enemy with a God whose name is Jealous, who is a consuming fire against all sin, all idolatry, all spiritual adultery, all of those who choose to be friends with the world, to be at odds with that type of God is a terrifying reality. Terrifying. But, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who would throw ourselves upon Jesus, we can actually come to know and say that the jealousy of God is good for us. Because the Lord will get who is his. That takes us to our third point. God gives more grace. Look at verse 6. 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives gives grace to the humble. I love the beginning of verse 6. It doesn't just say, God gives grace, but it says, God gives more grace. Grace upon grace. Grace that is infinite and measureless and boundless because it is grace that overflows out of his infinite goodness and love and faithfulness. Can you ever accuse God of breaking covenant with his people? No. We are guilty of adulterous idolatry through seeking friendship with the world, and none of us deserve any blessing from the Lord. But God gives more grace to his people. He doesn't give them what they deserve, but freely gives of himself. So we consider Hosea. So if you're you're familiar with Hosea, if you're not, it's okay. Just kind of brief overview. What's pictured in Hosea is this just graphic nature of sin and how terrible the breaking of covenant is. But then we get this wonderful change in kind of the the mid to end point of uh, Hosea chapter 2 and Hosea chapter 3. The picture that's given is that the adulterous bride who's gone astray from her husband who has broken covenant, the husband goes after the bride. The husband goes after the bride to get who is his. And he brings her back, and he restores her, and he gives her a new heart that longs and desires and wants her true and right husband, and no longer all of those men that she ran to previously before. So when we say that God gives more grace, one of the things that we have to to, to just come and rejoice in is the fact that, yes, we're all guilty of adulterous idolatry and seeking friendship with the world, but God gives more grace. And what he does in his grace, according to Titus chapter 2, is his grace comes in and it changes our desires so that we no longer want the things of this world, so that we come to hate what is unrighteous and come to long and love and desire the things of the world. God is jealous for his glory out of concern for his holiness. Go read Ezekiel chapter 36. Right? His people are just an embarrassment all over the world. But out of concern for his holy name, we might say out of jealousy for his glory amongst his people, he will come and give them a new heart and put his spirit within them so that they come to want and long and desire the things that are pleasing to him. God gives more grace. So to use the two analogies we have in this passage of James 4, 4 through 6, with considering what it means to be adulterous, so we have the analogy of a marriage, and then we have the analogy of friendship. One of the things that we can see that's displayed in the gospel and proclaimed in the gospel is this, is that Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 5, In giving just grace upon grace upon grace in his very person, Jesus Christ dies. He lays down his life for his bride to make her pure and spotless and holy and without blemish so that he will present her to himself. He is beautifying his bride and he is delighted to see her. People like us. In John chapter 15, we see that greater love has no one than this, 
and that you lay down your life for your friends, I call you my friends. Jesus Christ would lay down his life would pour out his own blood to make people like you and me who have only sought friendship with the world, he does that. He lays down his life to make us his friends that we might know friendship with God, which is maybe a thing that's so good to think about that it makes us uncomfortable to say, but that's what Jesus calls us. He calls us his friends because he has laid down his life from us. And yes, as we go through the world and we reject bowing down to the idols that this world calls us to bow down to, it will be hard, no doubt about it. Not just from the pressures we face out there, but the pressures we face from within. Notice, it's in verses 1 through 3, we saw that the passions and the pleasures, they're at war within us. It's our natural inclination to bow down to the idols, the idols of this world. But God gives more grace. He gives more grace. So as we are tempted, tempted to bow down to the idols of this world to avoid the furnace that the world creates, we have to remind ourselves time and time again what Jesus went through to save us from the true consuming fire. That is God when he will judge all sin. That Jesus himself steps into the furnace of God's wrath on our behalf to make us his bride, to make us his friends. That's what he brings us into through his sacrifice. So then we can say in all of our weakness and all of our neediness, we can't. We can't out the grace of God. God, as our true husband, God, as our friend, gives life. He sustains, he protects, he enriches. He is in himself and does for us what all of the idols of the world promise but can never give. So who will enjoy this more grace upon more grace upon more grace? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The weak, the needy, the broken, those fully aware of their own sinfulness and propensity to idolatry, those who run with open hands in faith because they know they have nothing to offer, they will experience more grace upon more grace. And when they need it, they'll find more. Always. But the prideful those who think themselves righteous, just adequately fine, not that bad, not that broken, above the temptations of friendship with this world, they will know the Lord's opposition. To be in a position where you are not confessing your sin and bringing the idols that you struggle with worshiping into the light is to put yourself on the opposite side of the Lord and be an enemy with him. But in repentance to come and confess your sin before the Lord and bring before him the idols that you struggle with worshiping day after day after day after day. The Lord, in hearing those prayers of confession, is not shaking his head. The Lord is saying, more grace. More grace for you. And you will find yourself on the Lord's side, not in opposition to him. A humble Christian and a humble church will be continually running to our Savior, Jesus, 
falling to our knees in confession of total need and dependence upon him, and we will be met with more grace. The world and its ways are tempting and alluring. We need to admit that they are. That's part of it. Our passions and our pleasures are warring within us to tempt us into friendship with the world, and we are totally susceptible to its temptations. But for those who humble themselves before the Lord, we will know more grace after more grace, and we will step ever more deeply into friendship with the Lord because of what he's done for us. Let's pray. Most holy God, the flesh is no help at all. It is the spirit who gives life. Lord God, the household gods that your people have struggled with worshiping, ever since they have been called your people, uh, we are not immune to those struggles, to hiding them away, to tucking them away, and bowing down to them when it's convenient. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would search our hearts and know our thoughts. And if there is any grievous way within us, that you would lead us in the way everlasting. That you would reveal to us the household gods that we are so tempted to worship. For the ways in which we seek after friendship with the world and put ourselves at odd with you. Would you convict us of sin and idolatry and all the ways in which we need it. Would you open up our eyes to see more and more the glories that are found in Christ Jesus, the more grace upon more grace that's found for those who humble themselves, coming to you in faith, by your gracious working, trusting and knowing that we have nothing good to offer within ourselves and we have no good apart from you, but you have supplied every need. Help us to know and trust in this great salvation that we have been brought into. That because of the blood of Jesus, you have made us holy, pure, spotless, and blameless. And you will keep us and you will preserve us. And not only that, but you bring us into deep friendship with us because you, Lord Jesus, have laid down your life for us and revealed yourself to us. We pray, Lord God, if there are any here today who do not yet know friendship with you, but are instead stuck in friendship with, this, with the world, we pray that you would open up their eyes to see just the goodness that's before them that's found only in Jesus, and that you would reveal to them the folly of idol worship within their own hearts and lives. Help them to see just how great the salvation is that's found in Jesus. May we rejoice in it and boast in it and praise your holy name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.